Uh, there's right? inspiration literally everywhere. Right. Right. And like, for example, like on my walk every morning around the green belt, I see this guy, this homeless guy, and he sleeps on the same bench. And I always say like, Hey, good morning. And he always smiles and says, good morning. And we cool. talked today, like what a beautiful day it was. And I'm like, this guy here is like, he's smiling and he's happy. And he's just happy with like a bench to sleep on in nature. Right. So like what excuse would I have to be unhappy? Like you can find inspiration literally from anywhere in the world. So long as you take two seconds to pause and think about it. This episode is brought to you by West Coast Beach, a year round beach volleyball club on the west side of Los Angeles in Santa Monica, California. At West Coast Beach, we aim to get 1% better every day, both on and off the court. You can find more info about us at westcoastvbc.com and on Instagram with handle at westcoastvbc. All right, I'm here with the one and only Travis Maywitter. Travis, thanks for, thanks for joining us, bro. Dude, Wex, my brother, what's happening, man? Hatton Beach Open, like 2016, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've played against you. I've played with you. You're awesome. You're inspiring. That's why I wanted you here, man. Dude, you got like one of my one of the best vibes on, on the whole beach. I swear. You just anytime Aaron Wexler's on the beach, it's just a <laughs> way better day. Just a way better energy out there. That's awesome, man. Likewise, right back at you, dude. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I think that's why we played against each other in uh, in the Laguna Open. Mm -hmm. And then, like, right after that, it was just like, well, he's really positive and happy, and I'm really positive and happy. So it was just like, it's match made in heaven right there. <laughs> For sure, dude. Uh, all right, Travis, here's your bio. I mean, wow. Um, you, uh, you went to the University of Maryland. Um, you went from Maryland to Florida to California. Uh, you're a all kinds of different kinds of athlete, athletic, <laughs> athletic vibes in you, but you're a beach volleyball athlete. You qualified for events on the AVP, P1440, um, internationally in the FIVB and the North Seca Tours. Um, you are an award-winning sports writer, and your work has been featured in the Washington Post, Yahoo Sports, Volleyball Magazine, Dig Magazine, among others. You're the author of We Were Kings, right I there. See, I see you've got it right back there. I appreciate that. I'm going to leave a link below to this, too, uh, so people can grab that. And you're also the co-host of the Sandcast, Sandcast podcast with Triborn, the most listened to podcast in beach volleyball. And that's sandcastvolleyball.com. And on Instagram, sandcast underscore podcast. Your Instagram is at tram. E-W. Did I say that right? Yeah, just tram, tram you. My nickname tram my you. whole life growing up was tram since like from fifth grade till I was about 23. And then so it was just Tram. And then my last name is Mew Herder. So I just shortened it up to Mew. Love <laughs> it. And on Twitter, uh, at Travis underscore M-E-W. Yes, sir. Travis, welcome again. Thanks so much for being here. Let's jump right into it. What does living an inspired life mean to you? Living an inspired life. I mean, I, I think there's so many different definitions of it, right? Like the self, I feel like the self-help industry has like blown up recently and like i'm sure you've probably got a couple books on that beautiful shelf behind you i love books <laughs> so i'm i'm like kind of digging into what those titles are but there's so many different definitions of like what an inspired life might be but for me it's it's kind of simple it's just like waking up excited to do whatever it is you want to do like if if you're really excited to play beach volleyball and like that's what you do then you're living your inspired life if you wake up and you love writing 
and you go out and you, your day is full of writing, whatever, maybe it's a copywriter or maybe you're writing like legal documents or maybe you're writing sports or books or whatever. But it, like if you wake up every day and you get to do something that like genuinely kind of like lights your soul up, then I think that's an inspired life. And, you know, I don't why, you know, I don't think there's any one definition for it, but that's the way I look at it. And when I know that, you know, I'm not heading in the right direction, when if there's ever a morning I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to do this today or tomorrow or the next week that I know that I need to kind of pause, you know, maybe go out and camping with my wife, get a little, you know, go out in nature, take a little pause and figure it out. But I think if you just, if you wake up and you're excited to do what you're doing, then you're living whatever your inspired life might be. I love that. And it's to me, why you inspire me is you just choose that. Like, don't you just choose that every day? You just choose to be like that. Yeah. I think there's a, one of my friends, I'm sure it, it's an image that's gone around fairly popularly recently on Twitter and Instagram, whatever social media you go on. But there's just this guy who has like a jar. It's just like a stick figure cartoon. It says happiness. And this other guy is like, how'd you get that? And he's like, oh, I made it myself. And, you know, I think it's, there's a lot of truth to that. And obviously, like everyone will have ups and downs. It's not like you can just be happy 1000% of the time, you know, and I, I right. think that right. it's when you can look at certain situations, your, you know, obstacles or, you know, adversity in life. And you're like, you know what? this is not ideal, but something great's going to come of this. You know, I think that that is, is kind of a, a great mindset to a spouse. And, and so, you know, I, I don't necessarily choose happiness every day, but more like choose fulfillment or a sense of progress or a sense of like knowing that, you know, maybe my path is a little bit less traveled by, but it's the one that I want to go down. And I love that. And I, um, so I recently got married in February and uh, so my dad in his congrats, speech, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> and my dad in his, uh, in his speech, uh, the rehearsal dinner, he's like, you know, like Travis has always just kind of carved his own path. You know, like no one in my family is a writer. And, you know, I went to journalism school without really any background in writing or knowing anything about like writing sports and like how like most newspaper guys make like $28,000 a year. It's pretty tough to live off that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I like writing and I like sports. So that's what I'm going to do. And then, you know, no one in my family had ever like moved out of the state, let alone, you know, just to Florida. I, I did zero research on the town. I moved to Florida. I just was tired of the snow and started looking. I was like any sports writing job South of Virginia will do. Started applying everywhere I could picked up a job in Florida and just moved there like zero, like zero scouting reports or anything. And then like beach volleyball, I fell in love with it in Florida, knew really nothing about it. And I knew that California was where you had to go to if you wanted to be a beach volleyball player. So I just kind of up and moved to California and just like on a flyer. So I, I think it's just, you know, if you just follow what excites you and what like kind of gets you stoked, like you're going to figure it out. You'll make it work if you really love it that much. I love that, Travis. You're, you're so awesome, bro. <laughs> um, I, want, I want to take this. So this whole project is about tools for the youth athlete to try to find inspiration both in and okay. out of the game. And I want to, I want you to uh, answer this questions from two different perspectives. Um, this, this particular question that I have for you right now, how do you stay inspired inside the game as well as outside the game? And I want you to answer that from an athlete point of view, as well as a writer. Okay. So from, from inside the game for me, I think everyone's motivated by different things. Right. So I've never been the type like I grew up in like this dream household, like your American dream, like 
you know, like great mom, great dad. who just like love each other a ton, like still together. Two brothers that I'm really close with. We like fought like cats and dogs, but like now we're mm-hmm. each other's best friends. Like we were all each other's best men at each other's weddings. Um, so for me, I'm inspired by progress and by mm. support. And so when I win a match that maybe I was the underdog in, I get really excited about that. And so I go to practice the next day. Like that doesn't give me a sense of complacency. That makes me like, I want to get that feeling more and more right. Where other people are motivated by like a particular loss and like that, you know, those sting for me too. And I get motivated by that, but it's when, you know, when I win a match or like in a Norseka qualifier this past year, um, in the qualifying round, I was playing Jake Gibb and Taylor Crabb. And me and Kyle friend took them to three sets and I was like super motivated by it. Like we lost, but I was like, you know, that's arguably a top 10 team in the world that, you know, we took the first set off and we were up like 14 to seven. I think they're ranked um, number eight right now in the world. Yeah. So like I I look at stuff like that, that's how I stay motivated within the game and you can find progress. It can be a big thing. Like you want a tournament, you want, you had a big upset or you just like something clicked at practice. You're like, right, wow, right. Like, you know, that passing form that I've been working on that finally clicked. You're like, you know, I hand set 20 clean balls in a row today. Like, okay, let's work on 25 tomorrow. So that's how Love I that. stay motivated kind of within the game is that sense of progress. Love that. Absolutely love that. Yeah. And, and carry that further as a writer and a podcast host. As well, as a writer. So writing is just kind of like my release i guess is the the this is kind of how i find my peace and calm you know for some people it's meditation for other people it's prayer and like those both have like a pretty big part of my life but like writing for me is just meditative it's just me and a blank sheet of paper and it's just like this mind dump and mm-hmm. i and like i'm a weird kind of writer because like i never outline anything mm-hmm. i just go and like i never know what i'm going to write beforehand it just spits out it's like that book behind you like I had no idea what each chapter was going to look like. And then I was like, God, that didn't turn out half bad. All right. (laughs) So for me, like writing is just super meditative. And so I know that when I'm kind of writing, um, I'm in the wrong spot when I'm writing something that it feels like work where, and Michael Lewis described uh, this wonderfully on the Tim Ferriss podcast. He's like, so he's the author of Moneyball, um, the big short, um, and, a, and a bunch of other um, bestsellers. And he was like, you know, I never write a book because I, I feel like I need to write it. He's like, I just write the book that I know that only I can write and only I would really want to write. And that's kind of that's how awesome. it is, how it is with me too. So I know if, if I'm writing a story, I'm like, gosh, like, I don't want to write this, like this story's terrible. Then I know that, and I've, I've quit a number of jobs because of that feeling. I was like, now nah, this job like isn't for me. I don't really get excited about writing it. So just to stick on your writing for a second, I mean, you know, first of all, this book is amazing and your, your ability to use imagery and anecdotes and you have like this uncanny ability to bring the reader right in with you. Um, did that, where'd that come from? Did you practice that? Did it, did it come naturally? That's a great question. Um, so I think I majored in journalism at the University of Maryland. And so pretty much every class, one of the first things they said, they're like, if you want to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. Mm, so if, like and, and I have been obsessed with reading my entire life. So when I was little, um, my parents had like a 9.30 PM curfew or something. <laughs> and uh, so what I would do when the Harry Potter series was out. So my bedroom was sort of, it was across the hall from the bathroom. And so my parents would turn off my lights and be like, all right, like good night. But I would, so what I would do is I would go across the hall, turn on the bathroom light and open the door 
and then open my door and lean my book out into the hallway so I could read it using the bathroom's light from my bed. I was like, I'm not wow. breaking curfew. And like, what parent could be mad at that? They're like, well, like my kid was reading again. You know, <laughs> That's <laughs> like, so cool, bro. So I've always loved reading. And I think that, and I love reading everything from fiction to nonfiction or, you know, whatever it may be, whatever topic doesn't really matter as long as it, the writing is decent. Like I love it. And when you read a lot of good writing, you see a lot of different writing voices, right? So some writers like Mark Twain, he can literally have a two page long sentence. Then you have Wright Thompson, who's my favorite sports writer, and rarely does he ever have a sentence longer than 10 words. Mm -hmm. Then you have Mitch Albom, who is probably my favorite author. I've got my own bookshelf over here. He's got a couple of books on and he has like fantastic imagery and just the way he describes things. And when you read all these different voices and you start to write and practice your own, what you find is that your writing voice is sort of this combination of all your favorite voices that, and you begin to kind of carve it out yourself. So, you know, the imagery, you know, I don't even know if I'm like that good of an imagery writer, but I like reading authors where the imagery is really rich. Like I'm reading this book over here called Shantaram, which I think you would really like. Um, okay. Okay. And, uh, but the imagery in it is like unbelievable. And so it's just, I think that the way you write is a reflection of what you love to read. I love it. Um, let's, let's stay on the inspired feeling. Let's talk about being uninspired. And I want you to talk about it again from an athlete point of view, as well as a writer, because that's, I, I feel like that's your main discipline. Um, you can throw in podcasting as well because okay. uh, I'm, a, I'm an aspiring podcaster myself. Yeah. Um, when you have the uninspired feeling, because it happens to all of us. Oh, yeah. You know, whether you're on the court you're, or, or maybe you're writing and you're just stuck. What are some tools to help you get out of that and get back to the inspired feeling? That's a really good question. So I had a little bit of this. I think um, kind of uninspired, maybe synonymous with burnout. Mm hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and so last year, I think I played, I counted up maybe 35 to 37 beach volleyball tournaments in <laughs> one year. And I remember like, there was a point midway through where I was like, you know what? I just don't care if I lose this match <laughs> and that's just like, not okay. Right. You know? Right. And, um, and like, you know, my knees had been starting to hurt and like, and so like, then I didn't want to go to practice because then I knew the practice would hurt. And if you don't want to go to, if you don't want to go to practice, then it's just, if, if your process is going to be wrong, then it's just not going to be ending up in a good result. So for me, just taking a step away from it for a second or finding maybe a different hobby, not saying like completely derail your path, but David Epstein wrote this great book called Range. And what he was saying is that, we're entering this age of specialization where kids have to figure out what they're doing when they're in like sixth grade and be it athletics or what they want to do in life. And he's saying that like what they're finding is that the rate of burnout and just like people are switching college majors, 80% of the time you go in with a major, you don't end up graduating with that major. And we're just like putting these people in holes too early and that they get burned out. And so what his answer to that solution is to like kind of be a bit of a generalist and have like a bunch of different things you're passionate about. So like if, you know, if, if my writing, I'm just like, man, I can't write one more feature story today, <laughs> then I can go down to the beach and play beach volleyball. Yeah. And then that might, then maybe my experience in beach volleyball might want to make me write about that. Or, you know, if, if I don't want to write, then I pick up a book or I go camping, which is a, a burgeoning passion of mine. Um, so I think when you, when you, I would say, find something else that you're passionate about 
and just like, you know, give it a day, give it a week. And so it'll ease your burnout and kind of like, kind of lights you up about because learning is super fun. If you're learning something new, you get passionate about something else. And so not saying like abandon it and just trade it for something new, but just kind of spread across your skill sets. You have multiple things that you're passionate about. I love that message, especially right now during quarantine, right? Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of us don't have the ability to go do what we love to do or, or know, do what we know that we love to do. So we have to look for other things. So that's a great message. Um, I want to ask you about practice and game time. Again, two, two different perspectives, because I really value your perspective off the court. Um, what's, the, what's the difference in feeling from an inspired practice and an inspired game? And how does one carry over to the other? again, from an athlete point of view, as well as a writer point of view? Okay. So for, it's a, a good question for, so for beach volleyball, honestly, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, and I wrote a story, I think at the end of last season where, you know, I'd kind of toggled between the various different types of competitor that I wanted to be. Right. So you have like the Steph Curry competitor, right. Where he's kind of like happy, he's goofing off, but he's still like, you know, he's competitive, right. You, know, you, you don't win a couple of NBA championships on accident. Then you have like, you know, the Kobe, right? And he's just like stone cold killer. And he belongs in there with like MJ um, and Tiger Woods, where he's just like, you're not going to see those guys like smiling and goofing off. Like and they're, out, they're out there to get yeah, and carts like they're out there to kill you. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have maybe the guys who like the trash talkers, like the Draymond Green, and that's how mm -hmm. they get fired up. Right. So for me, kind of finding the game time was figuring out what type of competitor I was and, and what emotional state in which I thrive the most. And for me, I found that I'm like a Steph Curry, which I, I would label you as a Steph Curry as well. Where you're just like good vibes and happy and laughing and smiling. And that doesn't mean you're not competitive. That just means that that's the type of energy that you thrive off when you compete. So for me, when I'm in game time, like that for me, it just looks like happiness. Whereas in, which is funny because in practice, I'm a lot more serious. Like I'm like really focused and I'm like today I'm hammering out passing. I'm hammering out setting. I want to get my serve dialed in so that when it comes game time, I can relax and know that like, and have fun and know that all the work's been put in. Now's the fun part, right? Cause we practice way more than in a game. So like when you finally get to the game, it's time to let go and just have fun. And like, you can't do anything about your preparation at that point. So if you prepare the right way, then, you know, you can let whatever type of competitor you are just take over. I love that. I love how you said, let go. It reminds me of healthy detachment, right? Yeah. You're just like, yeah, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And I, and like one of my biggest things and, and doing our podcast, uh, Sandcast has helped a ton with that because one of the biggest messages from across all the greats, and I think you can learn a lot about talking to a number of like, and you've talked to a bunch of, you know, Olympians, professional athletes, and that when you find a trend, you're like, okay, there's something to it. And literally everyone says, control the process and results will happen. Yeah. If you only focus on results, then it's just, it's not going to work out that well. So it's kind of that growth mindset. If you focus on the process, things will figure themselves out in the long run. You can just kind of let go of the results. Reminds me of that phrase, control the controllables. Yeah. It keeps coming up. Yeah. And that's uh, John Mayer, one of my favorite guys of all time. He always says that. I love that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we always say it you know, when we're coaching at West Coast, uh, you know, focus on what you can control, you know, which is the same idea. Yeah. And, and really the only thing you can control is when you practice and when you're getting better. Cause like you can't control what the weather's going to be in your match, but you can control if you see a crappy day outside, you can control whether you go practice or not. Yeah. And, and we had uh, Mike Lambert on our podcast mm -hmm. and he was talking about Karch and he said that there was like this terrible crappy day 
And he was like, well, maybe we shouldn't practice. And he was like, Karch was loving it. He's like, let's go. Like no one's practicing today. Like that's the stuff you can control. And now like when there's a rainy day, you know, who's going to be ready. Karch and Mike Lambert because they practiced on it. Yeah. You know what the word that comes to mind when you're telling me that is craftsmen, you know, yeah. and, and craftsmen love to practice because they love to practice their craft, you know? And, and so how do you practice writing? How do you practice speaking? For so really the I mean the best way to practice write writing is your write it so at Maryland it was really funny because um so I had pretty much all journalism classes and so I never had tests or exams like I never had any idea how to study because <laughs> all we did was write and so my first assignment um, in That's journalism cool. journalism two hundred one um, it was called journalism boot camp because that was when basically if you were going to be a journalism major like you were going to, you had to get through that, but people who like only half wanted it, they all dropped out. And so it was the journalism uh, school at Maryland has the highest attrition rate. And that could be both because of job prospects and because of the difficulty of the program. Okay. But so we, our first assignment was called man on the street interviews. And so what we had to do, he's like, you need to go out to, um, and we were each assigned an area around town. He's like, you need to go out to, um, uh, buoy and you need to interview 10 people and do a 500 word story on each of them before you're allowed back in this class and he's like however you also get docked if you miss class for attendance so it, it you like and neither none of us really had any idea how to do that and like you know these university of maryland's not a great area of maryland so like we're going out we're like asking these people about like their lives and like these are strangers right yeah total strangers like i went to a mall and was there for like 10 hours just like trying to work up the courage to talk to someone. And then we just wrote stories on them. And that was pretty much every class was he was like, all right, your assignment is to write a story um, on this bill that was just passed in PG County. Go. And so we'd go out and we'd make our calls and do our interviews and we'd write. And and if we had one fact error, one spelling error, we got a zero uh, out of a hundred. And so you just like learned by through failure, just trial and error. Ah, I love that. Um, and so that was like, so the way to write is just trial and error. Like if you want to be a writer, start a blog, start writing and you'll, you'll figure it out as you go. Yeah. And, and how do you push through write, uh, writer's block? I'm, I'm experiencing that a little bit myself. I think uh, writer's block at the end of the day, I think it is a little bit of arrogance um, to think that like, cause writer's block is essentially what I'm writing is no good. Mm. Right. And, but who's to determine what's good or not. And so this, uh, I don't know if you've heard of James Altucher. Uh, he's an author, podcaster, entrepreneur. He has a thing where writers have to write 1,000 bad words a day, right? So if you write 1,000 bad words a day, at some point, right? I mean, we're talking about 365,000 words a year. Some of those words are going to be good. So there's really, he's like, if you have writer's block, just write through it. And if you have a thousand bad words and that's okay, you got them out of your system and you can go write the next day and your next a thousand words might be really good. Wow. But you know, if your average book length is say 80,000 words and you write 365,000 words a year, well, you got a couple books just by writing a thousand and you know, maybe it'll take you an hour to write a thousand words or something. So I think writer's block at the end of the day, like you just need to let go of whatever expectations you have of yourself as a writer and just write. And so at least like, even if you have a thousand terrible words, like, then when you're maybe not feeling so blocky or, you know, you go out for a run or a walk and then you come back and like your mind's a little bit fresher, um, then you can kind of craft that into something a little good, but at least you have like some kind of clay to mold around instead of just nothing, a blank sheet of paper. 
Yeah, I really like that. I need to start doing that myself. And I actually encourage, even if you don't want to be a writer, anyone out there, it's a really uh, kind of healing um, activity. You know, even if it's just a free write. When I was traveling, uh, and I know you're very well traveled yourself, but um, when I was traveling by myself, uh, I was writing every day kind of like on the regular. And I felt so much better after I like just did even if it was a journal entry or just maybe if it was just words that were coming to my mind you know would you agree is that something you do as well yeah so I um my morning routine is I wake up and honestly the best way while we're on the topic the best way to overcome writer's block um is by walking for me walking or running or doing some kind of activity where you're moving but it's pretty autonomous so you don't have to think about it and so your brain just kind of shuts off and it just sort of works out whatever it is that you need to, to work out. Um, that. So that, uh, I think that's the best way to overcome writer's block. But, so my morning routine is I wake up and I go for a walk, like a 20 minute walk around the green cool. belt um, in Hermosa beach. And then uh, I drink some coffee and with the coffee, I either read some kind of like scripture, be it uh, the Bible or the book of Mormon or just some kind of faith um, based literature. And then after my first cup of coffee, as soon as that I journal, and then after I journal, then I read whatever nonfiction book I'm reading, um, which at the moment is The Purple Cow by Seth Godin. And then after I finish that, then I get into my own writing for the next hour or two. Wow. And this is every morning? Every morning. And during that whole time, are you checking your phone at all? No. So I actually, um, I don't, my phone's on airplane mode till about, usually to about 10 o'clock most days. Um, so, so I, cool. I, I put it on airplane mode um, around like 10 p.m. or whenever I go to bed. And then I don't turn it on until I'm finished writing my first story. So during beach volleyball season, when I have a lot going on, I'm usually up by like six o'clock. Um, so I'm usually finished my first story by like 930 ish. And then I turn on my phone and kind of allow the, the world to start creeping in. <laughs> Dude, that, That's so cool. That's inspiring for me to hear because I, I don't do that, but I would like to start doing that. And I think I, I was watching an interview of you and you said something about how you actually deleted your social media uh, or your Instagram. And then when you want to do a post, you just download the app real quick, you make your post and then you immediately delete it. Did I hear that right? Yeah, I go through phases where I do that, where I'm just like, gosh, like Instagram, it, it's just because it's such a time suck. Like you you, <laughs> you go to on Instagram to like post a story or like put up a picture or something. And then you're like, oh, well, look what the AVP put up. Oh, look, Bounce Beach has another highlight. Oh, Wexler's got a life update. And then like 20 <laughs> minutes later, you're like, what just happened? And right. then like you, then you end up not even posting what you went on there to do in the first place. <laughs> so what I would do, I would just uh, put up a story. I always put up the sunk swimwear quote of the day and then I would delete it. And then I would download it the next morning, do the same thing and then delete it again. And it was, it was great because like, like, you know, if, if you're at traffic or if you're just like kind of sitting by yourself and you just like mindlessly pick up your phone and check it and you don't even realize you're like automatically scrolling to Instagram. So it was just like the easiest way for me to like cut that habit. That's really cool. I, I, <laughs> I would actually challenge myself to try that before I challenge other people. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah. My wife thinks it's hilarious. She's like, well, can't you just like not check? I'm like, that's the thing. I can't. Well, it, <laughs> so. well but that's why I asked you about it. Cause it's it, in, in this day and age, especially for entrepreneurs and, and, you know, uh, podcasters, authors, like it, it's kind of part of our thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for the youth athlete or, or youth in general right now, it's part of their kind of daily life. So, um, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. There's, there's definitely lots of benefits from that stuff. Um, I've, I've actually, you know, met quite a, quite a few people from it, but 
I like your strategy in that where you're not, you're not like ignoring it. You're just controlling it and not allowing it to control you. Yeah. Cause, and like, I'm not totally on board with the social media is terrible crowd. Like nothing good can right. come of it. Cause like you said, like you meet a lot of good people, you make a lot mm-hmm. of good connections and like, I got a few sponsors from Instagram and right, right. there's a lot of good that can come from it, but you, you got to maintain it and keep it yeah. controlled. I feel like it's like a fire, like fire is like really good. But then once it starts getting out of control and it's just dangerous. So if you're just spending like your entire day, just swiping and swiping and swiping, like nothing good really comes of that. Oof. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about mindset, Travis. And again, uh, I would really love to hear your perspectives, both as both as an athlete and a writer. What is just give us a little glimpse on your mindset pre, during and post training sessions or games. What, what does that mindset look like? So I go into um, so I'll go into like a practice. Right. And I'll say I'll have three things that I want to accomplish. Right. So I'll say I want to um, just focus on getting my hip square on my sets right? Or just facing where I need to set. Cause I'm a big fan of the side chuck set, you know, and, and <laughs> it's just helpful to know one. Cause like, I don't know where it's going to go. And my hitter certainly doesn't. And so I'll just pick three very um, definitive practical things to work on. And if anything goes wrong outside of those things, it doesn't bother me. Cause I know that that wasn't really what I was working on that day. So say I'm working on passing. If I like dime a pass and then go hit a swing 40 yards out of bounds, like that's okay. Cause I got, you know, I improved what I wanted to improve. And so for, you know, for my mindset with a match, it might be a little bit different where um, it'll be more of a mindset where we're like, I want to come out and be aggressive, right? Because in a match, like you can't be really happy if you're hitting balls, spraying balls 40 yards out of bounds. But if I say, you know, if, if I'm making aggressive mistakes, hitting high seam that go a little bit long, I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to make a mistake, that's the one to make. And I'm okay with that. And I like that. And so that's what I was so mad when um, I, so I qualified for the three-star in China uh, this past fall and we played this Russian team. It was gnarly. And Who were you they, playing with? I was playing with Mike Bogue. Hey, and shout out yeah, Mike Bogue. Yeah. love Mikey. And um, so like they were serving me every ball and this is a really good Russian team. Like they beat Phil and Nick in Warsaw, Poland. And um, so they're serving me every ball. And, uh, and I was like, all right, I'm not going to swing low. Cause in the match before Adrian Hydrich had blocked me like 20 times. Like, I swear, like if you watch the film of that, it's like, it's just tragic. And so I was like, I'm not going to swing low. I'm swinging high and deep. And then like both sets were up 15, 13. And I think like when it comes to crunch time, you revert to what, you know, and I kind of like those low, like kind of chizzy swings. And we lost both sets 22, 20. Cause I started going back to the low kind of chizzy swings and they just like kept blocking me. So I was like really mad after that match. Cause like, I did exactly what I didn't want to do at the most critical juncture. It's like my mindset is just like pick like, you know, stay aggressive. And if you make a mis- like aggressive mistakes, like that's okay. Right, right. And you like got to let those go. Yeah. That's awesome. And can you just talk a little bit about uh, as a writer or podcast host, um, just some, some of your mindset there? I think the most important thing as a writer and a podcast host, and I think that like you are really good at this already as I can see is that it's not about you. Mm. So as a writer, like I hate it when people, when authors put themselves into the stories, when it's not relevant, when they're, you know, if like, you know, someone, if a writer is mentioning a quote, if I'm doing a story on, on you, I'm like, you know, Aaron Wexler like told me that he wants to be the greatest of all time. Like you don't need to put yourself in that story. The story's not about you. All right. It's about Wexler. 
Right. And so in a podcast, the same thing is like when I'm interviewing someone, like my job is to stay out of the way. It's to just, you know, shine the light on them and keep it there. Right. And when I'm writing, it's the same exact thing where, you know, if I'm doing a feature on Katie Spieler, right. Like one of the best humans on the planet, like I don't want to be a part of that story. My job is to show the best qualities of Katie Spieler. Right. And so that's what I look at as a writer and an interviewer is what's the best way I can shine their best qualities in the most creative light that no other writer has done before where I'm not a part of it. That's so great, Travis. I mean, a couple of things to come to mind real quick. Um, number one, like I'm impressed with the way you interview people and the way you're able to grab so much detail out of somebody. Cause you're like, your memory is amazing. I mean, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, you, you, like even in this book, like uh, you remember like the small little details of each little set and game on, from that particular tournament, from that particular year. And you're able to just um, get the emotion out of somebody from that, that particular moment. I mean, you know, where does that come from? That was uh, this class, uh, University of Maryland, it was a feature writing class. And it was um, my teacher, her name was Marlene Simons. And uh, she was like kind of an award-winning science writer, but she was always, so what we would do our class, she would give us a feature to read, like a really long form, like New York Times or Sports Illustrated or really long feature to read. And then we would go in and it was a three hour class. And all we would do is pick apart that one feature. And we would go paragraph by paragraph, like, why do you think this writer did this? And what I found was that what made those stories so good and so memorable was details mm. and just the really little things that you can feel that story right so if i'm writing you know a story on you know madison and riley like their story in new york when they first qualified and like you know their grandma died um like the night before and like i wanted to put the reader in that bar with them the night before where they heard about their grandma passing um and so like you just and a lot of times when you ask these questions, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's like, mm -hmm. well, what was the name of the bar? Like, what were you guys drinking? But when you bring those details out, like your reader's literally sitting in the bar with them. And that makes that story so much more powerful when like they can see and hear and feel and smell what's going on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have a little note here. It says, you know, you're, you're so knowledgeable about every single player, I feel like. And, <laughs> and, and like, and, and well, part of that is not just that skill, but also the passion to, to find out. Yeah. Right. And, and that curiosity. Right. Yeah. And I think with that is just um, it's just preparation. You know, the interview is going to be so much better when you're prepared, both for the interviewee and the interviewer. You know, when I go into an interview and I'm not adequately prepared, I'm really nervous because mm -hmm. I'm like, gosh, I don't know how like how am I going to carry this conversation if we delve off of like these three topics? That I know about. <laughs> but, right. you know, if I know almost more about their career than they do. Like if I know like specific sp scores of specific matches, then it's going to be really easy for me because I know that like no matter what they say, I will know what they're talking about. And then, you know, I can kind of steer the conversation any which way they want to go. And and it's just com more comfortable for everyone. And I also think that when you as an interviewer express that you are knowledgeable without throwing it in their face, mm -hmm. they'll also give you more respect. Like I know when I was um, talking to Jake Gibb, and he, so he has a, a panoramic photo. The only sign of beach volleyball in Jacob's house is a panoramic photo of the 1976 Manhattan Beach Open. And I mentioned that in an interview just in passing. And he was like, holy cow, dude, like that's a good memory. He's like, you did your homework. Like, that's my favorite compliment is when I'm interviewing someone, they're like, you did your homework. Because then I think there's a certain level of respect there and that they're going to be more willing to open up to you because they know how much work you put into this interview. 
and maybe that's true or maybe it's not, but that's just what I've, I've experienced so far. No, I think that's a hundred percent true, especially in my recent experience. Um, maybe this is a good time to ask you about Eric Zahn. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your memory of him and, and any experience that comes to mind or, or any other emotions that come up? Yeah. So, I mean, Eric, and it's, it's where, I mean, we're almost, uh, we're a little bit less than, um, I mean, it's been like 11 months, uh, since he died. Um, and it's crazy. Cause like, you know, I've got, I'm looking at, I have this photo wall behind me and I've got, you know, four or five pictures of him up there. But so the, the first time I met Eric, so he, he lived in his van, right. He was kind of known for that. And he, he moved from, uh, Florida. Um, he was originally from Jersey. So we're both East coast guys, but so I see him at this AVP next and he's playing with Skylar McCoy and, uh, and I just see, and they were just like horsing around and goofing off. And like, they never called each other by their real name. He's like, all right, Shane, let's go, Randy. All right, Vanilla Ice. Come on now, pick a pop, you know, whatever it may be. And I was like, who are these guys? And uh, so Eric comes up to me. He's like, hey, I hear you're a writer. I was like, yeah. He's like, you should write a story on me. I'm living in my van. And I was like, yeah, it does sound interesting. And so I uh, did a story on Dig Magazine on him. And from there, like, you know, we were all, we just started like being pretty good friends. And, and Eric had this, uh, it had a funny reputation because, you know, he was like loud and obnoxious and like Eric was Eric. And if you didn't like Eric, he didn't care. And if you loved Eric, like that was great, but he didn't really care. He was just being him. Um, and, free so spirit. I, and yeah. And so I saw him as just like this good free spirited guy who maybe pushed the lines a little bit, but never really went over them. Um, and so, you know, we, we trained a lot together and then we ended up, uh, we were roommates for a while. I, uh, <laughs> I lived in the, in the garage. So what we would do is, uh, so we had a two bedroom, two bath apartment in Redondo and we would Airbnb it out. And so when it was Airbnb, Eric would go live in his van and I would live in the garage. And so what we did was we just took the biggest expense of everyone's life in California rent and we actually turned it into a profit. Mm-hmm. And so we were just getting paid not to live in our own apartment, which is hysterical. And so, <laughs> so Eric, when he was living and he was training in Brazil with Jeremy Casebeer, he, uh, he calls me up and he's like, uh, Hey dude, um, USA just emailed me and asked if we want to get a snow volleyball team together and I was like okay sure like when and where and so it was this trip from Austria to Italy 10 days playing snow volleyball so Eric like puts this team together and he like kind of convinces Sean Scott that we would be better than the other team you know who was in the running for it so we go to Italy and this is one of my favorite memories like of all time not even just with Eric but just ever so we were on a bus from Austria to Italy and Eric gets the bus to stop at a rental car place, like for us, just for the Americans to pull off the highway, like go five minutes out of the way, drop us off. And so we find a rental car place and Eric uh, rents us a, a stick shift um, uh, Fiat. Mm-hmm. Well, none of us know how to drive stick. <laughs> so, so Eric like, pulls up and there's this one other Italian guy in there. So Eric pulled up a YouTube tutorial, like five minutes. And the, the guy was like, all right, this is how you drive a stick shift. And so we rent this car and like I volunteered to drive. And so we just learned how to drive stick shift on the fly in Italy. Um, the four of us is me, Eric, Chase Frischman and uh, Chris Vaughn. And so we take this cross country trip through the Dolomite Mountains and like it was snowy. And like I must have stalled out probably 15 or 20 times, like in the middle of the road, like went through an entire traffic light rotation at the same light because I kept stalling out and like Eric was loving it. He filmed like every little bit of it and was cracking up. 
He's like, that's some good adversity right there. And so that, and which to this day is one of my favorite mottos. Like that's some good adversity. Mm. Like Eric, anytime like a weird situation presented itself, not only did he see it as like something that positive could come out of it, but at the very worst, it was going to be a great story. And so we always say like, that's some good adversity. Now me and uh, my wife Delaney um, is partnered with Katie Spieler, who was dating Eric. And so like us three have been like best friends, like pretty much inseparable kind of ever since. And so we pretty much do everything. And so like, like Eric was probably, I would say like my best friend in California um, at the time. And so like just one of the all time, like great personalities and people like I've ever known. Absolutely. Thank you so much for telling me that story and, and sharing that because, uh, you know, I, I would love to have his legacy live on as someone who was all in with life. He was just, he just was, lo he loved it. Like my memories of Eric were just like, whether it was on the court training or when I was watching him compete, like he was just in it, you know, and he would bring it all the time. And, and it sounds like he brings it off the court too. And, and so, yeah, that, that's great to hear. Yeah. And, and honestly, like, and I know it's, it's weird, like what happened and everything, but I think like, he's a good definition of like a guy who's living an inspired life. Yeah. You know, like, like, I know Eric just did Eric, you know, he just right. like, he woke up from when he's like, I'm living in my van. Yeah. This is what I'm doing, you yeah. know? And he just loved it. And one of my favorite things that's come out of that is, um, you know, me and, and Katie and John Mesco, um, and one other who's chosen to remain anonymous. We, uh, founded the Eric's on scholarship. Oh, and very cool. So last year we were able to, through donations, um, we were able to donate, uh, $2,000 to Megan Nash and Logan Weber. Um, and then we were able to fly Casey Losick to AVP Chicago. And we were able to get Aurora Davis to a Norseka in Bonaire, which she ended up winning. Um, so we ended up dishing out maybe like almost $6,000 worth of um, scholarships to get volleyball players to various tournaments that they otherwise like would have financially struggled to get to. Amazing. And it was so cool to see the community rally around that. And, and we have um, more funds this year to, you know, whenever the AVP kind of decides that they're hosting tournaments. So we have funds again for the scholarship year two. Um, we have a bunch of applications. So it's been really cool to see his legacy live on um, in the form that's helping volleyball players in so many different ways. No, that's awesome, man. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a great segue to my next uh, segment here, which is about emotion, because what you did there with that fund is you, you took the, the, the tough emotional part of what happened and you transformed it into action. To me, that's inspired living. Yeah. And that's like, honestly, I mean, that's a lesson directly from Eric is that like, so like Eric's passing was some serious adversity, like one of the, probably the hardest thing that I've had to go through. Um, you know, I've lived like a really blessed and fortunate 29 years. And so that was the first funeral I'd ever been to. You know, I still got, um, you know, three grandparents. And so like, you know, I really, death hasn't been a huge part of my life. Um, and so like, that was an adverse situation. We're like, okay, well, like there has to be some good that can come from this. Let's figure out how we can make some good from it. And so Absolutely. we put it in the form of a scholarship. So like, you know, good can come from any bad situation. So long as you just take a second, think about it, you know, let your emotions do what they will and figure out, okay, well, how we can make, how can we make this productive? And there can always be an answer. Amen to that. That's awesome. Um, let's, let's go back a little bit to in, in the game or in practice, or, mm -hmm. or again, back to your, your writing discipline. What are the differences and similarities in emotion 
from both an inspired practice and an inspired game? That's a good question. Um, one of my, my computer's on 5%. I may have to get a charger. Um, but no problem, no problem. But uh, the difference between an emotional practice and emotional writing, um, they're much the same. I think it's, I'm like super happy. I'm in a great mood and it's just flowing, right? So I think the difference maybe is that when I'm writing and I'm in like a super like flow emotional state is that things are moving super fast and I'm just cranking stuff out. Like I can write like, you know, maybe 10,000 words in two hours and just really not pause and look up. And then in a match though, when I'm like kind of like in that flow state, it's like everything's in slow motion. But in the same sense that I'm just like really content and I know that I'm doing like exactly what I need to be doing. Like I'm exactly where I need to be. I love that, Travis. Um, let's move right into flow because you, since you mentioned flow state, when you're playing or writing or podcasting, uh, can you identify when you are in the game, in the flow, in the zone? Um, there's only been, so with writing, it happens pretty frequently, um, cool. which, which is like great because I've kind of figured out my wife is delivering my my computer charger awesome teamwork (laughs) um when when i'm writing um i've kind of i figured out the routine to get me in there um and so i know that i know when i'm in the flow because i'm not like quite not like rewriting the sentences every two seconds like it's just i'm just letting it go um when in a game it's a lot harder because i think i've only probably been there once or twice um but for me, it, I think the trigger is breathing, um, which is a lot tougher in a match when your heart rate's at 175 for you know 45 minutes straight. But when you just take like a big, deep inhale and a long, slow exhale like before a serve and you just only have one focus, like I don't know, things just kind of happen. I remember I was in an in AVP Next. I was playing with Miles um, Wokututia. Love that guy so Shout much. Shout out, Miles. Yeah, and we were playing um, Paul Lottman and uh, David Lee in the semifinals. And we won like 28 to 12. And like, these are two Olympians. And like, they're really, I mean, David Lee has made a semifinal. Paul Lottman's made a quarterfinal in the AVP. And um, it was just like, things were just like going really slow. And I was just really in control of my breathing. And when something bad happened, which was pretty rare at that point in that match, um, it never bothered me. You know, it didn't like phase me at all. I just went back like big, deep breath, long, slow exhale, and we're going. And so, and everything was just kind of like slow. And and you have the inner game of tennis right there, Mm -hmm. right behind you. And like, I, that, if, if you guys have not read that book, all you listeners out there, that's a must read. If you're an athlete, really just, you just want to learn how to be good at life in general. Um, and I was just kind of like taking advice from that. It's just like control your breathing, like think about, you know, all the stuff that is, is not about like passing a ball. You just control your breath and things will automatically go where they need to go. I love that because the breath for me, like what triggers that for me is awareness, right? Because when you, when you breathe like that, you're able to, to hear yourself one and self two, which is what that book talks about, Yeah, you know? And, and so that, that's awesome. But to me, um, that's a, a, like the number one tool, like, like to have awareness on your, on your breathing and then that gratitude feeling, which is like, I'm so grateful for this moment. Like those to me are like the two, two, two specific tools that can keep me in that flow state. Yeah. I love, I love the gratitude. I think that that's so important where I think, uh, Gosh, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt, maybe, who said it like, you should do one thing that scares you every day. Mm-hmm. So when you're in a situation and it's like 1919 
and you're in the semifinals or the finals or or maybe like you know last like in a qualifier where it's really high stakes and you're like a little bit nervous and scared like then you get super grateful you're like wow i'm doing the one thing that scares me every day and like you get just really grateful and happy for that moment and i think uh billy allen wrote a great story um about him and ryan darty in hermosa beach and they lost in the finals and um you know, Billy was talking about how, like, you know, it was just like he went from the highest of the highs to just this gut wrenching feeling losing in the finals. Cause I think they were up like 14 11 at the freeze or something. And he wrote in his blog, he's like, How lucky am I to be able to feel emotions like that? Like, your, your average nine to five office worker um, won't get to feel those highs and lows. Like, they don't right, get to right. feel that full spectrum. And just we're so fortunate. So, like, even when you're feeling terrible, like, you should be like, Wow, like, I get to feel the full spectrum of what it is to be human and alive and living. And it, it kind of reminds me of, have you ever seen the movie Hitch? Yeah. Where <laughs> you know, sure. Will Smith is like knocking on Eva Mendez's door and he's like, I just want to be miserable. You know, because <laughs> yeah. like, you know, you're in love when you can just feel miserable. It's so right? true. Yeah. Anyone who's like been really inspired by a craft or just like loves their craft, like knows what it is to just feel miserable when things are going wrong but you love it so much that you're going to work it out. And I, I love just, that. Yeah. And so I just think that when you can really feel that full emotional spectrum, like, you know, you're doing the right thing. I love that. So going back to flow for a second, cause this is, this is a, a challenging one. Um, and I've been, I've been asking everyone this and I would love to hear your, again, two perspectives. If, if you mm -hmm. can, is it possible to bank that flow state or that in the zone feeling in practice and then try to access it later in the game? That's a good question. I see. I don't think it is because I think it. Um, like I know when I'm when I'm writing, for example, I know that like when I hit that flow state, that I get sort of paranoid about having anything interrupt it. Mm. And so, like, I'll and, and like it's really funny. Like anytime my roommates, like either when I was living in Baltimore or Florida, or, or like you know my wife now, like they can sort of recognize when I'm kind of in that state, and like they'll try to talk to me, and I just. I, I got nothing. Like I got, I don't hear them. You know, I've, I don't really acknowledge them. I just like, nothing's getting me out of there. So I think that once you're in it, you know, I think you just got to stay in it. I don't really think you can just be like, hold on, hold on. Let me just grab you and, and hang on to you for later. I think what would be vital is for you to take a step back and recognize, okay, what did I do to get me into this state? And Josh Waitzkin, I don't know if you, you've heard of him. He's mm -hmm. a, kind of a he was a chess master there's a book about him um, called chasing bobby fisher oh yeah 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 so he was like a, a chess master he was like 14 but so he wrote this book called the art of learning and so what he did was he figured out his triggers to get himself into a flow state and so he boiled it down to a five minute routine a warm-up routine to trigger that flow state and so i think when say you get into a flow state at practice afterwards take a step back and like okay what did i do that led to me getting into that flow state. And that's the way you could bank it by learning what triggered you to get into that state. Then you could do it when it's really mattering in a match or, you know, a championship or whatever it may be. Dude, that is huge. Uh, remembering what, what it took to get there that, yeah. and, and then bank that stuff. I love mm -hmm. that. Or, you know, maybe while you're in it, like recognize, like, what are you smelling? What are you feeling? You know, how does the sand feel on you? And other, maybe the sensations around you, maybe that'll get you into it, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, when you're really in it, I feel like you can actually 
you can actually kind of remember what you were thinking. Cause a lot of people say, Oh, I was just like, so in it. I don't even remember. But like, when you get super aware, you can actually kind of remember like specific things. I re I remember specific things. Oh, like that, that shot's open. Okay. Right there. Boom. Like all that specific stuff that's happening when you get yeah. so clear and remember that stuff. I don't know if that's necessarily flow state, but it's, it's kind of close to that feeling of like, I'm in it, you know? Yeah. Just like kind of any state of like heightened awareness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's kind of what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that, man. Um, let's talk about sources, Travis. Where do you get inspiration from? It's a good question. You got a lot of good questions here, Wex. I appreciate Thanks. that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I get inspiration kind of from anybody who's really living, I, you know, I don't, the cliche thing is like living their best life or whatever, but um, just someone who's out there who is making it work despite the odds. You know, because anytime you look at someone who is at the pinnacle of what they have done, like they have gotten through insurmountable odds, right? Or seemingly insurmountable. Like when, I don't know if you've read Shoe Dog, and I know I'm dropping a lot of books here. No, but I love it. it keep Shoe keep dropping names. I love it. <laughs> so Shoe Dog is a story of Phil Knight founding Nike, right? And there were so many times throughout Phil Knight's career with Nike that Nike should have been shut down or bankrupted or like he thought about it. He was like, we're, we're done. Right. But he just kept pressing forth and you just find a way. Right. And this is one of my favorite movie quotes is in Jurassic park. And he's just like, life will find a way. Right. And so I just look at guys, either it could be businessmen, it could be athletes, it could be writers, it could be actors or producers or whatever, who they have found a way because anybody who is at the top, has overcome something. So you just look at it like, what did they do? What did they tap into that allowed them to overcome that and reach whatever level that they have reached? So that's why like, I love reading books because they're almost like memoirs are fantastic because they're almost all about someone overcoming adversity or odds and getting to the top. And it's like, well, if they can do it, then like, look at me, like I grew up in like this great middle-class family. Like I had all the resources in the world. I went to college, like what excuse do I have? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's right, why I, right. I, I like looking at other people who have done it and I'm like, okay, they can do it. I can do it too. That's awesome, dude. I, I've, you know, it like you, you also remind me of, of someone who would say, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you could, you could find inspiration anywhere. Yeah. Uh, there's right? inspiration literally everywhere. Right. Right. And like, for example, like on my walk every morning around the green belt, I see this guy, this homeless guy, and he sleeps on the same bench. And I always say like, hey, good morning. And he always smiles and says, good morning. And we cool. talked today, like what a beautiful day it was. And I'm like, this guy here is like, he's smiling and he's happy. And he's just happy with like a bench to sleep on in nature. Right. So like what excuse would I have to be unhappy? Like you can find inspiration literally from anywhere in the world. So long as you take two seconds to pause and think about it. Yeah, dude. Amen to that. I love that. And I'm inspired again, I'm inspired by you. Uh, <laughs> you know, not only because of the way you live your life, um, you it's it's also like the amount of illusions that you can come up with. Like you can just allude to any <laughs> of this stuff or movies or people or like it, that's inspiring to me. So that's <laughs> awesome, man. Um, let's move on to the lightning round. Yeah. Um, and again, you can answer these however you want, but uh I'm gonna try to go a little bit quicker. How do you define success and what does being successful mean to you? For me, I think successful means that I can, well, uh, kind of two definitions here. Mm -hmm. So I have like kind of a definition of like wealthy, 
right? So for me, wealthy is being able to make a living from wherever, where, whenever I want. Right. So if I, I can write, for example, that's why I love being a writer. I can write whenever and wherever I need, so long as there's Wi-Fi and I can sort of make a living. So to me, having that freedom to not go into an office or be kind of on someone else's schedule like mm -hmm. that to me would be my definition of wealthy. And to get me there, like successful is that I wake up and I'm excited about what I'm doing and that's it. And so like, there's no, like, you know, I'm not trying to like climb any ladder or like reach any financial goal. But if I have those two things aligned, then I'm successful and wealthy and I'm happy. Love it. I love that. How do you consider the idea of failure? Yes. So I think failure is such an interesting topic these days. So like we, we hear these things and it's like fail fast, fail fast, fail fast and like fail and fail and fail again. But I think that there, it's a, there's a little bit of misconception there. I think we've over fetishized failure because I think we've come to look at failure as a good thing, but there is a way to fail, right? So if I lose and I lose, if, I, if me and you were playing a match, and you beat me because I hit 30 cut shots in a row and you sided out every one of them. And I'm like, you know what? I didn't fail. I learned. But then the next time I play you, all I do is hit cut shots. Then I did fail because I didn't learn anything. Right? So failure is when it is your failure to learn and to adapt and to grow. And so if I, if I were to lose to you in the Laguna open and I hit 30 cut shots, right? And I play you in the Laguna next year and I beat you on hitting line shots and jumbos then that loss of previous year was not a failure because I learned. That's funny. Right? <laughs> so I think when we look at failure, we're like, you know what? We lost, but that's fine because we learned. You can't just assume you learned. Like you got to dig into that failure and it hurts and it'll sting and it'll be prickly. But like, if you don't do that, you're not going to learn and you're not going to grow. And then you did fail. That's so well said, Travis. It reminds me of Kobe because when, uh, when he was asked something similar to that, he said, yeah, you know, I, I watched those losses hard. Yeah. I, I got into them. Like you just said, I dug into them. And he was like, man, I would study those losses, you know? And, and at a lot, you know what? A lot of athletes are, are afraid to do that. It's too painful. It reminds us of the emotion too much, you know? And it's hard for us to manage the emotion of the, of the loss. So we just want to like push it away. Yeah. But I, I love what you said. Like, no, dig in, you know? Yeah. And after, uh, gosh, I forget, maybe after AVP Austin this year, I watched the film that night and we lost to Paul Lotman and Gabe Ospina, who ended up having a, a tremendous tournament. They upset Jake and Taylor in the first round. And, um, but I watched it that night and, uh, Delaney was like, are, are you like, you're going to watch that now? I was like, yeah, like I have to, like, I can't, yeah. I can't let it go. <laughs> so, right. Right. I just, I have to dig into it right after it, it just eats at me. That's great. Well, that kind of almost answers the next question, but let's, let's go for it. What are the most successful habits that you do on a consistent basis? I, I think the most successful habit I have is, is routine. Yeah. Um, I love my morning routine. Like, and the good thing about it is that it's, you know, I, I can, it's transportable, right? So mm -hmm. I can, I can do that morning routine anywhere I go. So long as I have a place to walk, and a book to read, which mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't take up too much space. So uh, I think that having that routine, you know, it just puts me into just this mind space where like, I have a win before nine o'clock every morning at the very latest, right? So I think the most successful habits for me is reading, journaling, and exercising. And if you do those three things every single day, you just can't lose. Mm. <laughs> you know, I love especially, that. especially if you knock them all out before most of, uh, of the other people are awake love that real quick uh speaking of routine 
Are you familiar with Wim Hof? Yes. So he got me on that cold shower right in the morning. Oh yeah, I love a cold shower. Do you do that too? <laughs> yeah. I started doing that and it kind of changed my life, quite honestly. Um, the first couple months were difficult, but it's become part of my routine and it's uh, my body feels better. My mind feels sharper. Yeah, it, it'll wake you up when you yeah. do it. I make sure, I, so usually I do cold showers um, after I work out um, and that'll like kind of cool me down. But if you do it in the morning, whew, you're awake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I make sure I do a cold shower before a, a match. Um, that really, that, that gets you going. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so part of this project, I've been coming up with uh, words that I, I I think of for each guest. Okay. Um, I'm going to tell you my word for you after I ask you what you would say. What is your word for yourself? Oh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. What's the All first right. word that comes to mind that best describes you? Um, uh, introspective came to mind. Nice. Um, and I think just, I think that's more recent development um, as I've gotten older. So my parents, I have my dad who's soft-spoken, introverted, um, and kind of the, the quiet, the strong, quiet type. And then there's my mom, who's just like super extroverted and outgoing and like, Hey, how are you? And I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of become more of my dad and where I stop and take my time and think about things before I do them. And then think about like, take a good minute to really inspect like what happened, what went wrong, what went right afterwards. So I think introspective, and I think that comes along with reading and writing and, and journaling that a lot of that is introspective and meditative. Mm. Love that. Okay. And I agree with you. Um, but I, I was struggling to come up with one word for you. I actually came up with two. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, okay. The first one is persistent. Okay. And, you know, and that to me is just kind of watching you develop into a beach volleyball player. You know, you just, you just kept grinding, get, kept getting better and better. And that's me as a competitor against you, as well as your teammate, yeah. as well as just a fan. Um, so I, I could just see this persistence in you. Um, and then the other word that came to mind is amiable and you, you, you just have this way to connect with people. Um, and, but it's, it's cause people can connect with people and that's cool. That's a skill, but you have this amiable way to do it. You're so nice. You're so kind, <laughs> you know, and, and that kind hearted, that's another, that's another word that came up to mind, that kind heartedness. I just wanted to ask you like, do you remember always having that? Did that kind of develop, you know? Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. Those are like great compliments. You're just like, <laughs> make me blush over here. Um, <laughs> but I think that that, that developed at a pretty young age with my mom. Um, you know, I was really close. I'm still really close to my parents and my family. Um, and so my mom was always just like super nice and friendly. And she always taught us to be you know, nice and friendly. And what I found is that like when I was nice to people, they're nice back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you don't, you don't have to do it in a fake way. Like you can just genuinely be nice and that's how people are doing. And like, if you smile at a hundred people, someone's going to smile back. And so what I found is that like you create the environment around you and that the nicer you are to people, like the nicer they're going to be in return, as long as it's genuine. You know, I, I think that genuine is probably the most important part of that is that people can sniff out when it's fake you know, kindness or whatever. And then they're like, okay, well, what are you really after? But if you're just like really actually enthusiastic, like you are clearly like enthusiastic and happy, like with this interview, right? Mm-hmm. None of this is fake. And so like, I can sense that. And like, that's going to make me happier to like talk to you. So I've just learned that like, 
you know, when I really genuinely care about the other person across from me, they're probably going to reflect that back. Absolutely. And, and that's just kind of the way that, that I try to live my life. Absolutely. Authentic is another word that comes to mind for you. Appreciate that. Um, for you, Travis, what is the most important lesson that has helped shape who you are today? Um, I think that, man, there's a lot. Um, the most important, I think, is to accept the fact that if you're really trying to work at something, that not everyone is going to approve or like that, or kind of like that, right? So I like my life path has probably been like if my parents didn't weren't like super faithful and like the fact that I was going to achieve it, like they probably had some hesitation. They're like, well, he's going to be a writer and then he's going to move to Florida and then like beach volleyball. Like we never played volleyball. He's 24. He's never picked up a volleyball. Like what's he doing moving across the country? Right. So when you're out there and you're doing something and you're trying to do something remarkable, and I'm not even saying that like what I do is remarkable, but like trying to do what you love, someone isn't going to approve of it. And you just need to accept that. So like when you put yourself out there into the world, someone is going to disagree with the way you do it, right? So if I like say, good morning, how are you to someone? And they say, what do you mean? Good morning, it's raining. Like, they'll disagree, <laughs> you know? And right, right. Not everyone's going to agree with what you're doing. And that so, but at the same time, it's like people are going to dislike what you're doing if you are going out there and being yourself and you're risking it. But people are also going to dislike what you're doing if you're playing it safe. So you might as well, if you're going to fail, you might as well go for, you know, fail while daring greatly. As, uh, as Teddy Roosevelt said, and that I have the man in the arena uh, on my door up there. It's my favorite quote ever. Um, so I think that that actually, the man in the arena is probably the biggest lesson um, that has shaped my life is that, so the, the quote, and I'm going to get it a little bit wrong. It's, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives, who errs again and again, and who knows the trials of shortcoming, but does so while daring greatly, right? So he'll never know. And so at least if he fails, he, here we go, at least if he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Right. So if you're going to do something like at least you're going to do it and you're not going to be on the sidelines watching someone else and like criticizing them. So <sighs> just be that man in the arena, I think, is a long way of me saying that's the best lesson that I've learned in my life. Wow, man. You're so awesome. Can you share the biggest challenge you've been through on your journey? The biggest challenge. It's I think. Um, probably with my first book. Um, so my first book was a fiction book on golf called The Last 18. And so I wrote it and I had no idea. I'd always, always wanted to write a book and I had no idea what to do with the manuscript and it was finished. So I finished the manuscript. I'm like, and I finished it. I was at my, um, my girlfriend at the time, her place at the University of Maryland. I was like, so I have this book, but now what? And we were like, I don't know. So I researched <laughs> it. And so you had to find an editor. Editor takes a look at it, which I, I probably asked a couple hundred editors and got one to bite. Editor sends it back and he's like, okay, here's a hundred different agents that you can contact to represent you. So I probably got rejected maybe 90 times by different agents. Um, 
And that was the first time I'd ever dealt with failure, like mm. on, a, on like a pretty serious scale where, cause like, you know, I'd made every team that I tried out for growing up. Like I got into the dream school. I got into, you know, I graduated the journalism school. I got a job at the Washington post right out of college. Like at my life at that point, like had been extremely blessed. Like I had very little obstacles. And then here comes 90 straight rejection letters. I'm like, Oh my God. So like, I'm sending these letters out, like knowing, and like, then I was like, all right, send it out in two weeks. They'll just say no. And I was like, really, it just like, it killed me. Mm. And then I finally got, but the thing is that you only need one. Yes. Right. You can get 100,000 no's. If you get one, yes, that's it. Right. So the biggest challenge for me was just to keep going. And so I finally got an agent. Um, and then an agent I was in that book was in like one of the final was in the finalists to get published by random house. Um, but they ended up passing and like, that was kind of a big blow, but I was like, all right, well, if like random house was like kind of debating it, then like, it must be okay. And so it ended up getting picked up uh, a couple of months later and getting published. And, and that was writing a book, I think was the biggest, like most satisfying moment. And cause I was like, that is hard to deal with that much rejection and like you're like you're writing a book and working on it and, and you know how hard of a process it is just to write and then to get it published is a whole nother thing journey that I had no idea how difficult it was so just overcoming all that rejection but it's been so good because now I understand that like rejection doesn't really matter you know mm. all you is one yes right so it doesn't really matter what a b c d e f g you know to double z think as long as you just get to one person who's like yes that's my guy that's awesome. I'll probably uh, be picking your brain about editing and publishing and all that stuff yeah, man. too. Happy, happy to help. I am uh, an, an open book to help any prospective author. So if any listeners out there want to write a book, feel free to hit me up because I, I had no idea what I was doing. So yeah. I needed a resource to walk me through and I didn't have one, which ended up being a blessing in disguise as they always turn out to be. But uh, happy to help. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, just a few more here for you, buddy. How important is the idea of having impact to you? Uh, I think I think that that is huge, but I think if you go out wanting like if, if that's your goal to make an impact, I almost think it's it's backwards where I think if mm. if that's almost like if you go out to win a match, what you should really be focusing on is you should go out to win practice every day. Um so whereas, you know, if I'm out to make an impact, what I really should be doing is working to be the best version of myself and create the best writing and be the best podcast interviewer. And by extension, I will be making the impact that I strive to make without that being really the, the end goal that I'm trying to do. Love it. I love it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received and why? Um, I think, I mean, my mom you know, she was just like, you can do whatever you want, you know? And I think that certain things obviously have their genetic limitations, but, um, you know, could I go out and beat Michael Phelps? Maybe not. But the point is, is that I could try and that whether I be end up beating Michael Phelps or not along that path, I'll find something that I can be really good at. And then that can, you know, if you just go and I, I hate the thing, like, you know, follow your dreams or chase your passions or whatever. But if you just like kind of go and seek what really does light you up and you kind of let that lead you down the way you're going to find it eventually. So I think just like, just go do things like experience life in all of its many layers and beauties. And you'll find something that's going to work for you. Love that. And you were an awesome swimmer. We didn't really uh, talk about that. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I picked it up. I'm kind of, I'm I was a little bit longer, you know, so I, I, 
it was beneficial. I was, a, I was a good distance runner. And so I had kind of the cardio. So mm -hmm. swimming was kind of a natural fit. I got these long arms and I could hold my <laughs> breath forever. So <laughs> it wasn't too tough. I love it. Uh, this is perhaps the best question I could ask you, bud. All right. What is your ultimate why? My ultimate why? I think, man, I wrote, uh, I wrote a story on this. Um, back when I first qualified uh, on the AVP tour uh, in, in Austin. Um, and so right before that, Rafi Paulus, who's my partner, he's like, why do you want to qualify? And I was like, because I want to qualify. Like, yeah, like, what do you mean? And, uh, but then I really thought about it. And it's just, my why is just like, I'm doing the things I'm doing because I'm trying to sort of like become the role models that have set before me. And I know that like, you know, if I'm trying to embody the traits of, you know, 30 different people or hundred different people that I admire, that I will then become an entirely new person that maybe someone else will look up to. Um, so my why is to just try to really just create my own path and to show someone else, you know, if they want to be a writer, beach volleyball player, podcaster, random dude, like they can do it. Cause this guy did it. And like, what, you know, he picked up beach volleyball at 24. Like why? <laughs> you know. So I, I think that it's just to show, um, to kind of follow in the footsteps and try to lead just a good life. And, you know, whatever that looks like to you. Yeah. Um, Cause for me, like whenever I go out and I'm like, I'm going to try to do something good today, good things happen. Love it, man. You're so inspiring. <laughs> Looking back on your journey, is there anything you wish you could change and why? For me, no. You know, I've I've tinkered <laughs> with the idea of I wish I picked up volleyball earlier, but I have this uh, this habit of finding a passion and just diving headfirst straight into the deep end. And after four or five years, when I get pretty proficient at it, I'm so burned out because I never like took a breath to look up that I pick up something new. So I did it with swimming. Uh, I did it with golf. You know, I got down like a scratch golfer. I did it with basketball. Somehow it hasn't happened with writing. I have no idea um, because I've been doing that since fifth grade. Um, but with beach volleyball, like I think that if, if I had picked it up earlier, I probably would have burned myself out of it. So I really don't have any regrets because like my life has been just so like I've done so many different things that I think that all of those, all that different learning has kind of led me to where I am at the moment. And I'm I'm really happy and fulfilled with where I am at the moment and in the direction, the trajectory that I'm going. No regrets. I love it. Um, two more questions for you. You know, so again, this whole project was based on the pyramid of success by John Wooden um, inspired me to make my own pyramid about inspired living. Do you recommend other people out there, whether they're athletes or writers or podcasters or anybody, do you recommend that they make some sort of, it doesn't have to be pyramid, but some sort of like, um, compass or roadmap to, to get where they want to get to? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, and either they could write it out or just have it in their head or whatever, but just like, think about it, like, what could I do that would make me wake up every morning excited? Right. I think just if you ask yourself that really simple question and just journal about it, meditate on it, pray about it, um, you know, if that's your thing, um, you'll find your answers. And then once you figure out the various things that could get you excited, then you can be like, okay, what can I do that could embody all of these things 
and get me excited about every morning. So I think, yeah, and everyone will have their own compass, their own pyramid, whatever it may be. But I think it's super important for someone to just introspect and think about the stuff that would really just kind of light their soul on fire. Amen, bro. All right, last question. You you mentioned it earlier um, about fulfillment. I just want to kind of just talk to you for a second about that. What does that mean to you? And, uh, you know, what comes to mind when you hear that word fulfillment? I think fulfillment often gets confused with happiness. Mm. So like happiness is eating like a, a donut. Right. You're, you're really happy about it, but it's really temporary. Right. And happiness can, can a lot of times be fleeting and it can almost be backwards. Right. Where that temporary moment of happiness will then lead you to, oh, well, that, that donut didn't actually make me happy because now I feel like I got to go run five miles you know, to work it off. Um, so fulfillment <laughs> is is knowing that you are do, you're going in the right direction, um, even when things are going wrong. So if I get, you know, if I wash out of pool play in the CBVA, I'll still like, I'll be mad, but I'll know that like, that was a good productive day. Cause now I'll have learned something from it. I might not be happy, but I'll be fulfilled because I did what, what excites me in the morning. I did what I love to do. I was out there, I was exercising and I ended up coming away with a learning moment that will then further my trajectory up. Right. So I'm improving myself. So I think improvement goes along hands with fulfillment that as long as I'm learning and growing and improving every day, that would be fulfillment that I'm satisfied with, with the day and what I did with it. Travis, dude, <laughs> you're so awesome, man. I, 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 uh, I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with me today and, and sharing some of your insights and memories and, um, illusions and, uh, just, just thoughts, man. And, and just, you know, I, I really, I wanted you to be a part of this project because I know that you're living your version of an inspired life, you know, and, and you, you set out to do that every day and it's apparent in this interview. I mean, it's, it's so awesome. I can't thank you enough, man. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. I just love catching up with you, Wax. I'm glad yeah. to see everything's going well with you. And I love the Gandhi quote in the background. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, tell us real quick again, um, where we can find you, your Instagram, your podcast, all that stuff. Yeah, so podcast uh, is with my boy Triborn. Uh, it's called the Sandcast Podcast um, on Instagram at Tram Mew, and then Twitter at uh, Travis underscore Mew. And so, any writers out there who want to hit me up with any questions, feel free. Happy to help you guys along. Absolutely, and I'm I'm also going to link uh, that that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to link, uh, I'll, I'll add a link to that for, um, for a purchase for anyone who wants to get your book. And, uh, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Appreciate it. Again, Travis, thank you so much for, uh, for, for being on today. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon, man. Wex, my guy, have a great day. <laughs> you too, bro. All right. Later, bud. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on within the game podcast. Visit WithinTheGame.com for show notes and links on everything we talked about today. You can also subscribe to the mailing list, which will give you exclusive content from each guest, as well as more resources to help you stay inspired in and out of your game. Follow us on Instagram at Within the Game Podcast.